So welcome to the Mal and Johnny Show. A special guest today, the son of a legend, a legend in his own lifetime as well, but the son of a legend. We have often talked on the podcast about Stan Stennett, but uh, Johnny, well, you introduce him because you've known him, what, all of his life? Yes, well, most of his life. The first time I met him, he was about two or three, and his father had flown in, in his aeroplane to Skegness to do a concert. There was Kerry running about like a little boy, so... Yeah. Well, welcome to welcome to the podcast, Kerry. So we, I mean, there's so many things that we could talk to you about. We could talk to you about your, you know, your football collection, your involvement in football. But we thought we'd start if, if we can get you for a couple of times is to talk about your dad. And he was a remarkable man, wasn't he? Oh, Mal, it can't can't even begin really to to talk about the sort of things that Dad was involved in over his long and varied career, uh, and obviously for a long time, uh, he and Johnny were absolutely thick as thieves. Um, but of course, Dad could go back a lot earlier than that, um, and of course was rubbing shoulders with with Johnny's dad, Bert Cecil. That's right. They started off in Welsh Rabbit back in the fifties, I believe, on it, Kerry. Yeah, um, Dad, uh, like a lot of sort of performers of his time, um, did a lot of work in the army. Uh, he was in the Royal Artillery sort of for the last couple of years of, of the war. And uh, he took his guitar with him because he was a semi-pro performer uh, sort of in the early years of the war when he was only about 16, 17 years of age. Took the guitar with him and then, of course, started to do some of the Go As You Please contests. But uh, after having won a couple of those, um, he got a couple of chances then to appear on Welsh Rarebit. And, of course, Johnny, your dad had been a, a mainstay of that programme, hadn't he, really, right the way through the 40s? That's right. He was involved with most of it. And with my Jones, the producer, needs to be a bit of a, a talent scout, the old man. If he saw somebody Welsh he thought was good, he'd tell me and she'd put him on, see. I was just going to say, Mal, Dad, I think Dad first did uh, did a first appearance on, on uh, Welsh Rabbit. I think it was about 1950 or 51, uh, the year after he'd done his, uh, his first pantomime. So uh, it really was right at the very start of his career. And, and for him, of course, it was wonderful exposure because at the time it was every Sunday night, Johnny, I think I'm right in saying, on the, uh, the home service, wasn't it? I think he was on the light programme, actually. It was, it was like networked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was all over the country. Yeah, yeah. So let, can we go back a little bit further then? So, you know, you'd say your yeah. dad was a semi-pro before the army, but where where did he come from? And was there show business in the family? Uh, no, uh, no, no showbiz in the family at all. I mean, in a way, there wasn't really much of a family. Um, Dad um, came from difficult circumstances. I mean, he never knew who his father was. Um, his mother, unfortunately, she passed away relatively young. And so my dad was brought up by his grandparents. Uh, he first saw the light of day on a farm down in Brinna, near Rukilog, down in Pencoid. So that's that's where he sort of uh, he, he sort of called home. And and like a lot of people at the time, uh, was brought up as we said by his grandparents because you know his his upbringing was absolutely you know as it should have been with with older sort of grandparents looking after him. But Dad never, as I say, knew who his dad was, and he also never really knew his mum terribly well because she went off uh, and subsequently married and dad really had to make his own way in the world and he became a, a van boy van driver as well by the time he was about 15 or 16 even though it was uh, against the law but of course the the war was on by then 
and um, he absolutely loved going to the cinema, Mal. And and his his one great delight was seeing cowboy films. Right. And so he loved people like Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Tom Mix, and he loved the whole idea of uh, the singing cowboy. So he he modelled himself as a as a kid, as a teenager, uh, on on becoming um, a, a, like a Welsh cowboy. And um, one of the characters that he had actually then in Welsh Rarebit was Big Die Jones, the Welsh cowboy. <laughs> I remember that. He was just reminding me of a gang he used to do. He said, um, my father was a great gambler. God bless him, whoever he was. That's exactly right. <laughs> he used to say it in his act. He did, he did. And on, and on stage, Johnny, you'll remember, of course, again, back in the day, he used to actually have a couple of guns with him in his holster. Oh, yeah. Uh, obviously, they only fired blanks, but they were blinking noisy. And uh, as soon as he came on, he would start firing the guns and he would shout at the audience and he'd say, nobody leaves when I'm on. <laughs> and uh, people were petrified because they thought he was firing a live, a live gun. Um, but he, uh, that character, uh, Big Die Jones, was one that he used for many, many years on stage. And he also used it, obviously, in Welsh Rabbit. Not that, right. obviously, because it was a radio programme. People couldn't see that he was dressed up as a cowboy. Um, but I was only thinking the other day, uh, Johnny, when, uh, when obviously you and Mal kindly said about coming onto the programme, um, it struck me that one of the things that Dad did in his, uh, in his early days was he used to do a lot of parodies of songs. Right. And the one, of course, that he used to do as Big Die Jones, the Welsh Cowboy, was a parody on the song Ghost Riders in the Sky. Oh, yes, I remember it. <laughs> and he, he, he turned it, or it was turned into him by whoever wrote it for him, to coal miners in the sky. <laughs> I had him ball, so, I had him ball, I've got no small. <laughs> we want no small, no, that's, that's right, yeah. As, as I went riding out, uh, was it, uh, on, I don't know, it, uh, an old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day, on Dowless Top he rested as he went along his way. <laughs> And coming from Triorki, some miners he did see, digging at the seam of coal just for the NCB. <laughs> and then we said the line, he heard them ball, we want no small. People <laughs> wouldn't have a clue what it was all about today, would they? Not a, not no. a clue. No. Uh, yeah, amazing. But, you know, being being that part of the community as well, that, and with Welsh, Welsh Rabbit, you know, again, for, for actually just my generation, I suppose, I, I, I remember this, the sound of it, but I didn't, it wasn't a part of my life. But if you were a part of it, it changed your life, didn't it, to be on Welsh Rabbit? It changed your life. It was it was a huge break um, for, for my dad. Um, and He'd, he'd had a, you know, he'd had a couple of years as a semi-pro. He'd, he'd also worked as part of a trio called the Harmaniacs. Um, he worked with uh, Steve Gibson and George Hodge, who were two very, very dear friends of, of his. And um, they started off playing places like the cinema, like the Olympia, which became the ABC in Cardiff. And they were working all these sort of workman's halls in, in the valleys um, when he sort of came back and was demobbed from the army in, you know, about 1947, 48. But um, they did a summer season up at the Gaiety in, in air for about 25 weeks. Um, and I think that almost sort of killed the trio off, really, because they decided, the, the other guys decided they didn't really want that lifestyle of living away from home for as long as they did. 
they'd done some weekly variety around some of the metropolitan halls in London, uh, which was okay. But then, as I say, I think the summer season up in Scotland, uh, nice though obviously air is, it, it was probably the thing that made the two boys realise they didn't really want to go into the business full time, uh, but Dad was absolutely all for it. So, uh, by, you know, by the time then he he did get the chance to go into um, Welsh Rabbit, he was very much a solo performer with his guitar. Um, and as I say, things like these uh, these parodies that that he used to do. And he was also very, very keen on American humor, Mal. Um, he, he was a big, big fan of a lot of the American performers. Um, and he actually had the chance at the tail end of the war uh, to work down in Sully, uh, down towards Johnny's neck of the woods, um, in a, a show that was on at one of the US uh, service bases that uh, Bob Hope did. So he, he got to work with Bob Hope very, very early on in his career, not that probably uh, he, he probably didn't even necessarily say hello to him, but he, he would have certainly watched him from, from the side stage. And as I say, Dad was just such a devotee of that sort of slick transatlantic humour. And yeah. in a lot of the uh, a lot of the things, Johnny, then, you know, that were written about Dad through the early 50s, a lot of people did sort of compare his wisecracking with a lot of American, you know, comedians. Yeah, and yeah. He, he liked zany humour as well, didn't he? He loved, like, uh, Spike Jones and the City Slickers and, yeah. and oh, the Three Stooges yeah. and all that. Yeah, he was he was absolutely on the floor when when the Three Stooges came on, and and a lot of people would just look at him as though he was mad. But but he loved that American <laughs> humour, and uh, when he used to come on stage as well, of course, he used to have a big cowboy hat with a big arrow through it. So it looked like the arrow <laughs> shot through his head, um, and he he used that for years. Absolutely. I remember his bill matter was certified insanely funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, how politically incorrect or incorrect could you get, really? Yeah, certified, yeah. insane, uh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, you know, you're doing a lot of gigs, you get match fit, you get very good at it. But was he a student of those of those acts as well? Would he, no, I mean, not research, we call it, not, not well, you steal from the best, don't you? But, but did, yeah. did he, you know, did he actively, you know, research them and try and, you know, find out the good bits and use them in his own act? Well, I think it was it was difficult in those days, Mal, because of course we're talking about a very different time, aren't we? I mean, there was no television. Uh, okay, there was steam radio, as they used to call it, and and you know this is why, of course, Welsh Rabbit was so important because, as Johnny mentioned, it was a nationwide program broadcast on a Sunday evening. Uh, they used to do it from the Corey Hall in Cardiff. That's right. Yeah. Of course, yeah. No yeah. One there. Um, and I mean, it was the launch pad for so many people. But yeah, Harry um, Seacom for one. Yeah, yeah. Well, Harry, yeah. Harry then used to um, compare uh, the show, the radio show, on alternate weeks, and then Dad used to do the other weeks. Nice. So Dad never worked terribly much with Harry in those days, but they were then the two people who sort of took over. Because I mean, it, it sounds funny to say now, because because they were the new breed, weren't they? Yeah, um, yeah. And there was another uh, I mean, Ozzy Morris. Was it Ozzy Morris? Ozzy, yeah. Yeah, he, well, was, Ozzie, he was a good comedian. And, I mean, the thing is, John, Ozzy was a huge star. Uh, yeah, he was a big name, yeah. Big, yeah. big name. Um, and one of the things uh, that, that I've got here by my side, and I don't know how easy you can, you can, you can pick this up, but there's, there's the, the poster for Dad's yeah. first uh, oh, pantomime. Ozzy, yeah. 
uh, at the Grand in Swansea. Let me get it the, the right way around. Hey, yeah, do, 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 yeah, that's it. Up a bit. 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 Up a <laughs> and he was opposite uh, another guy who um, was by the name Royston Smith, and he was a little person, as we now have to say. Right, right. And yeah, um, yeah uh, and so it was, Rod, it was Red Riding Hood, and uh, that was Dad's first panto at the Grand in Swansea, fifty-one. Uh, no, fifty-fifty-one. That was. So the funniest thing is, the first panto I ever did with your father was at the Grand in Swansea. It was. Nineteen sixty-nine going into yeah, seventy. I, I, I got the post. Oh, there it is. You got it. There it is. There it is. There it is. Johnny Tudor yeah. along the bottom. Yeah, yeah. That's me. Yeah. My dad always used to say that was probably the the most fun he ever had in a pantomime oh. um, with you, Ronnie Coyles, uh, the Falcons, and I mean it went on for about thirty weeks, didn't it? It finished after Mother's Day, so it was well into March. You know that. Yeah, we used to yeah. laugh so much on stage yeah. and off. You know. Yeah. I'll never forget one day that one of the stagehands was a coalman in the daytime and he yeah. came in through the stage door with all his coal all over his face and he didn't realise the show had started and he went right across while we were on stage and he went, oh, it's done. <laughs> yeah, nice stuff. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't believe it. But you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. The thing is, Mal, Dad, um, Dad sort of had a bit of an allegiance to Swansea as well because, as I've mentioned, he was he was passed around lots of different members of the family because, uh, as I say, his his mum couldn't really look after him. And then when when his grandparents had gone, uh, as I say, different aunties and uncles looked after him. And one of the pairs of aunties and uncles lived in Gorsinan in Swansea. And so um, Dad sort of had about two or three years growing up in Swansea uh, or in Gorsinan. And so he had a real soft spot for Swansea, and he always loved playing the grand. And of course, as we said, did his first pantomime there. Um, and also then he did a panto at the Empire in Swansea with Morecambe and Wise. Um, he, he did five years on the bounce with Morecambe and Wise in panto. And one of the years was at the, the now long gone Empire in Swansea. Yeah. But he was it's... top of the bill and Morecambe and Wise weren't. No. No. Yeah, well, actually, that, that's very yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I met Eric and that was the first thing he said when he found out it was from Swansea. We did our first gig there. But obviously it was, it was bottom of the bill to your, to your dad. Your dad had this you know, ability, or well, he had a plane, so he could go all yeah. around the country. Did yeah, he Did yeah. he ever move out of South Wales? You know, I mean, why didn't he go and live in Surrey or, or you know, in London or, or, or the yeah. home counties? Well, it, it's, a, it's a good question, actually, uh, Mal. Dad loved his home, um, and I think that was partly because, as I say, as a kid, um, he didn't really have any roots. Uh, he was very loved by all of his aunts and uncles and his grandparents who looked after him. Um, but I think Dad was just desperate to have a home base, and he loved Wales. He loved everything about uh, the people of Wales, and particularly South Wales. And certainly, uh, 
people asked him that question throughout his entire career. You know, wouldn't you have got on more if you'd have been living in, as you say, in Surrey or, or in Twickenham or wherever it is? But no, never wanted to do that. Um, and as you rightly say, in the mid-50s, he got himself a pilot's license, uh, bought himself a plane. Uh, and so, of course, he would do Sunday concerts in places like Skegness. I mean, he would literally fly to Skegness on the Sunday morning and of course, he could be there in about an hour and a half or whatever it was. Whereas back in the day, to drive it, it would take you about three days to get to Skegness. <laughs> yeah, and as Johnny says, all of all of the uh, the Butlins and all those holiday camps, they had their own runways because they used to do the day trips, didn't they? Take take the uh, take the tourists up and uh, into the air. So well, it, it was all ready and waiting yeah. for him. Well, they did. And if they if they didn't have a runway, then Dad would get somebody local to find out if there was a farmer who had a decent farmer's field that was was flat enough. And he would literally <laughs> land his plane in a farmer's field. Uh, and in fact, one, on one occasion, he landed in a farmer's field. And when he got out of the aircraft, he noticed that there was a bull in the field with him. Um, what he didn't realise was luckily the bull was tethered. But Dad had visions of this bull coming and charging his aircraft and pranging the uh, the prop uh, and obviously then all right dad would have got out the way a bit sharpish but then it would have been a long walk back to cardiff yeah. <laughs> i remember he had a, he, he called himself the south wales air force <laughs> <laughs> yeah no he really did and he, he co-opted other other sort of celebs of the day into it and certainly people like harry seacombe uh, was was a member um and um whenever he did a summer season um he always managed somehow or other to inveigle a situation where some of the very pretty chorus girls used to go up in the aircraft with him for a flip around the bay um, probably the less said about that johnny the better you know oh, he, he took me up once oh johnny yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went up from swansea once and two of the chorus girls and me and stan and we just did a yes. flip around and they started screaming the place they were frightened to death he said oh, i'll have to take them back now <laughs> Was that was that Johnny? Because you got in the back with him, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right, moving swiftly on, yes. family right, podcast, yes, yes. and jo John yes. always probably listening. Um, yes. What about material then? Did he write his own material? Did he have Did he have script writers for him? He, like a lot of people, yeah, he, he paid for uh, sort of scripts from different writers. He had an agent um, in the early 50s, two, two brothers, um, two Jewish uh, gentlemen by the name of Joe and Ernie Cash, who lived in the East End of London. And they were steeped absolutely in, in sort of British theatre or variety theatre. Uh, and they literally could go back to the 1920s uh, and even the days of when Charlie Chaplin was still around in London trying to earn a living. Um, so they knew everything that there was about how to do things properly. Mm. And they really schooled Dad um, about buying good suits to wear on stage, which with due respect is something that Johnny has always done. I mean, Johnny has always looked immaculate with all of the suits he's ever worn. But, you know, sometimes, you, Johnny, I'm sure you agree, you see really good performers and they're in dreadful suits on stage. Oh, and you just I know, I know. I, know. I remember my tailor, a fellow called um, uh, Robbie Stanford, a Jewish bloke. He had a, 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 his, his, his shop was in just off Bond Street. And he said, yeah. yeah, John, he said, you know that pencil, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, he's a lovely singer. And he said, but who makes his suits? They're diabolical. Tell him to come to me. 
Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, to come back to what you're asking, Mal, yes, Dad, uh, he, he wrote little bits and pieces of his of his material, um, but very much he, he did get sort of stuff from some of the script writers and gag writers of the day, of whom people like Bob Munkhouse, of course, was one back then. Because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's how, that's how Bob started his, his career in the business. Um, and then, you know, Dad always liked to use his, the guitar in the act with him. He always liked to do musical comedy. And as Johnny said earlier on, zany, silly comedy, which in a way was, was perhaps a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, it sounds a strange thing to say now with the way that, that variety has moved on, entertainment's moved on. But yeah, back in the day, actually, Dad was quite different to a lot of the other comedians. He didn't yeah. just tell gag after gag. Now, you know what I say about Stan? Um, like a lot of comedians today, they stand up, they've got a string of jokes, and they just tell them, Stan was a funny man. A lot yeah, of them are yeah. not funny men. They just stood there like raconteurs telling jokes. Whereas Stan yeah. could make you laugh by making a funny noise. He had, you know a, I mean? he had a great face. Sure. He had a great face for comedy because it was it was like plasticine. It was it was yeah. very funny. Yeah, <laughs> he did all the funny noises. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the guitar, and uh, yeah. actually, one of the first times I interviewed your dad, it was to do a musical interview. We both had guitars. I remember it yeah. to this day. He came in. It was a lovely, full-bodied Gibson, and we played yes. Sweet Georgia Brown together. And he was he was just so naturally gifted at that material and and he's so fluid as well that he could talk and play this and he could tell that he'd done it for years that you know because sometimes I, i've got a bass player and um he, he always likes to try a challenge so we used to we used to start my shows with uh, keep on running and he goes dun, 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 dun. so he, uh, normally the guitar said ladies and gentlemen please really welcome mal pope and, and uh, come on stage and you know be a, a little ripple of applause anyway the guitarist couldn't do it one week so the bass player thought you know dun, I can do this, he said. So he, so he found himself going, dun, 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 dun. ladies and gentlemen, please, will you Because <laughs> he couldn't, you know, it's a really difficult art to play and sing yeah, and make it all yeah. sound natural. It's so natural. Yeah, and was, yeah. Well, he was, he was the, you know, he was the king of that. The Gibson Barney Kessel oh. uh, was his was his guitar of choice from the early 1960s right up until his last gig, which he did with Johnny um, in a, a chapel up in Bliner um, about six or eight months before he passed away. Um, over the years, Dad had lots of different guitars. He he loved to collect guitars. He had uh, he had a nice Hofner guitar. He had a Harmony. Um, he had um, a, a couple of, of Gibsons. But his favorite favorite Gibson was the Gibson Barney Kessel. And I'm I'm very pleased to say that that guitar is now with my nephew Sam, uh, and actually plays in um, a gypsy swing band, nice. very much recreating the music of Django Reinhardt in the 1930s. Um, but it was I mean I play and dabble a bit with the guitar, uh, but Sam was taught uh, by my dad, and Sam started playing guitar when he was about ten years of age, and uh, everything really that he he knows he was taught by his granddad. So it was only fair that that Gibson Barney Kessel now should reside in my nephew's house rather than in mine. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, your dad's friends in show business, obviously Eric Morecambe never forgot that friendship. And um, you know, would, no. you, would, would people come to their house? Would you go and could, would you see these people sort of as you know as kids yeah. having dinner yeah. and stuff? 
it, it, I mean, it, it sounds a weird thing to say that, you know, you had so many of these people come and stay. I mean, certainly Eric stayed several times at my mum and dad's house, our family home, which was up on Rabina Hill in Cardiff. Mum and dad bought the house in about 1963 uh, and they never left because for my dad, you know, it, it was his castle. And um, we had lots of people come to stay. Les Dawson um, stayed. I remember Clive Dunn uh, from uh, Dad's Army stayed for a day or two. Um, lots of people just called in because back in the day, again, as Johnny will remember, one of the great venues um, back in, in the 70s and 80s was the Double Diamond Club in Caerphilly. Um, and so, of course, any of the boys and girls that Dad knew who were working there uh, up in Caerphilly would always nip down the other side of the mountain um, and come and have a cup of tea with him. And uh, I remember us going to the Double Diamond to see um, Tommy Cooper and Dad got up on stage and did a bit with Tommy because, again, they went way back to, to the 50s. Um, not they, they never actually did a summer season or a panto together, but, I mean, they knew each other. Um, but, I mean, yeah, Double Diamond was was... Oh, One of big. almost clubs, John, wasn't it? Well, you had the Double Diamond, you had Tito's in Cardiff, you had the, the, the Cleopatra's in Newport, you had the Hellmain in Esk, you had all these big nightclubs, yeah. they were great. You could do a full week in each one, you see. So mm, all the absolutely. big stars would come down. I think Lonnie Donegan opened the Tito's. He was a big pal of your dad's, wasn't he, Lonnie? He certainly was. Um, and and that actually, that brings me to another poster that I've got here, if I can find it. There we are, there we are. Let me put it up again. Um, uh, Lonnie. The Comedian's Graveyard, the Glasgow Empire, uh, and there we are, Lonnie Donegan, and uh, there's my dad in the middle. And Des um, in the corner. And Des down in the corner there, yeah, Des, uh, Des O'Connor. Yeah, wow. yeah. What's the story about Des O'Connor? He fainted to get off or something, but... <laughs> he did. I mean, uh, Mal, as you probably know, the Glasgow Empire was looked upon as the English comedian's graveyard because they literally used to throw rivets um, at the at the English comedians, um, particularly on a Friday night. It was only because, were Welsh, but not English. But that was the thing. So, because Dad was Welsh, uh, he sounded like an American. Um, and he, he got away with it. But you're quite right, Johnny. Yes, on one occasion, Des O'Connor literally fainted so that they could drag him off the stage because he was going so badly. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised and, I saw his act. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and funnily enough, uh, Mal, my, my dear old mum, bless her, she always used to say about Des O'Connor because he had a bit of a thing for very nice young blonde wives, and I think he had about three. Um, and whenever, whenever Des was on television with his then wife, my mum would always comment, she'd say, well, of course, I only knew his first wife. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, he did get through a few. Um, <laughs> my dad was, was always, I think, petrified to uh, divorce my mum. So they married in, what was it, 1948, I think it was, or 49. And, and they were together then for their entire lives. And they'd known each other since they were 15. Wow, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, um, re yeah. Reinventing himself then, you know, because mm -hmm. the, the, the music halls or the theatres closed down, nightclubs finished, he became an actor. I mean, was he, was he always an actor or did he have to learn to be an actor to, to go on to Crossroads and, and become a big star on that show? Well, um, in point of fact, the, the, the first time that he ever did anything seriously in the acting vein was way back in, in the mid-70s when he was asked um, to play the part of a communist shop steward in a Colin Welland play called Leeds United. It was uh, one of the Play for Today series. 
And uh, it was a really, really sort of big, uh, big production set in Leeds at the time of a big strike in the, the rag trade, in the clothing manufacturing. And my dad played the part, as I say, of a, of, of a rabid uh, red communist shop steward. So that was his first bite, uh, which he really enjoyed. Um, he was good, okay, too. That, he was good in that. Yeah, and I mean... That was TV. And uh, he played he was the Northern accent as well, which oh, I was because yeah. he could do any accent. You know, he could. He was yeah. Yeah, good at accents. And he was also then offered um, a part in The Comedians, um, the stage play. Um, but do you know he actually turned it down because he just didn't like all the foul language in it? Oh, right. mm. Yeah. So even though he would have been acting in it, it just absolutely stuck in his crawl, the idea of effing and blinding all the way through the piece. And he, he just didn't want to do it, so he turned it down. Yeah. Um, he actually went into Crossroads initially as a character called Harry Silver, who was an American GI on the run. <laughs> so it was uh, it was a bit implausible for a Midlands uh, hotel. But anyway, he did a week of that. And he got caught in the end with a, with a toy gun holding them up, uh, a few people at ransom. Um, and subsequently then, he got the chance to go into Coronation Street. And uh, he played Hilda Ogden's brother in that for a couple of weeks. And then had the opportunity a couple of years later to go back into Crossroads as a completely different character, which was uh, Sid Hooper, the garage mechanic. Um, and the the six week run turned into seven years. Amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, and, and it's funny how people re think of Ringo Starr as being the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine rather than the drummer in the Beatles. It, it, you know, for many people of one generation, yeah. that's that's who your dad was. He he was that actor on on Crossroads rather than being the comedian, the guitarist, the you know the entertainer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest, Mal, as, as you rightly pointed out, theatres obviously were having a hard time um, sort of towards the end of the 60s. And then into the 70s, Dad, of course, started to produce his own summer seasons and pantomimes down in Porth Call. Uh, and then we, we also did summer seasons elsewhere too, Colwyn Bay, we did Southport and so on. Um, but I mean, Dad was doing that to give himself work because in fairness, uh, he'd had a long stint in the 60s in the minstrel show, which had started for him in about 1960, finished for him in 66, because he'd had enough. But really then it was a bad time to be coming out of such a settled show because as Johnny will remember, there just weren't the theatres putting on summer seasons or the sort of variety that, that dad knew and loved. That's right. But the thing is, you, I remember when we did Swansea Grand, we, he discussed it with me. He said, I want to do a summer season. He said, probably. Where, and we, we thought, well, what about Porth Call? And that was a fantastic show. It, it broke all records. And then, yeah, of yeah. course, from there, he did all the... I, I don't know how many pantos I did, but they were lost count. But mm, they all mm. did good business. I mean, because it was, they were proper shows. I mean... I remember that first one. It was Stan, obviously, top of the bill, and you had Roy Lester, the second comedian, Paula yeah. Lee, she was the magi a magician. You had Leslie King. Uh, there was the, the Falcons, a knockabout comedy act. There was me. Yeah, yeah. There was the Dancing Waters. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, Carrie's Waters. You see, the, the, the point again is, uh, Johnny, as you will remember, and, and, and obviously, Mal, I'm sure you're aware too, that Dad always tried to do things the right way. I mean, OK, we had to cut corners eventually because, like everything else, money was, was tight. But Dad had been brought up in the business and had been taught the right way to do things. Um, but as, as we're saying with Johnny now, you know, 
not easy then when everything was changing, theatres were closing, uh, it became very much about the clubs and dad didn't like playing the clubs at all because invariably people wanted to hear blue material and dad just never, never did that. So, um, you know, the stuff that we were doing in the 70s and subsequently, I mean, we gave a lot of people work uh, and, and I'm sure lots of people were very grateful for it. But more than anything, I mean, dad was just giving himself work because he was such a ham. He didn't just want to sit at home. He, he wanted to be out there in front of an audience. He loved it. He loved it. He gave Ruth Jones her first job, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we did Panto one year in Porthcawl. We uh, we did. I think it was Dick Whittington, and Ruth was uh, a local uh, girl from the local Porthcawl comp. She was about sixteen, and she was desperate to get herself an equity card. So she was actually my assistant stage manager for about uh, eight weeks, and we also gave her the part right at the end of the show to go on dressed up as a teenage mutant ninja turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, these yeah. are all great memories uh, in the business. What was, we haven't got an awful lot of time left, so let, let's bring it round to yeah. you, your father as a dad. Um, did you see a lot of him? Because he seems to have travelled a, a lot. Did you did he get a chance to, you know, to go to the football together? Because obviously I know you're a massive football fan. Did he do all the things yeah. son and sons and fathers got a chance to do, or was he always away? He was he was away for a great deal of time. And, and in fairness, I, I have to pay tribute to my dear old mum, bless her, because, I mean, she brought me and my older brother, Roger, up at times single handed because my dad absolutely realised that, you know, you had to sell your soul to the business to to get on. And. Uh, in the 50s, before I was born, and when Roger, my brother, was a little one, uh, they, they had a caravan and they toured around in the caravan to different places. And in point of fact, my brother didn't go to a proper school till he was about 10 years old. Um, but my dad was just completely committed to making it work for him in the business. And weekly variety, you know, one week it was Glasgow, the next week it might be Brighton, you know, the next week it was back up to Manchester, the next week um, it was perhaps home in Cardiff. Um, so it was difficult growing up. I didn't see as much of him as I probably would have liked to have done when I was younger. Uh, but again, as Johnny will know, I had the great privilege then really to work alongside him from an administration point of view with the shows that we put on. And then on one pantomime season, dear old Bryn Williams, who was in one of our pantomimes, was taken ill. And because I was the stage manager, and it, I just so happened that his coat fitted me, uh, I had to go on and, and take over from him uh, as the captain in Dick Whittington. Uh, I ended up doing the rest of the run. And, of course, that was it then. Once my dad realised that I could do it, I mean, I was in the pantomime every year then for about the next 20 years, playing all the rubbish parts that nobody else wanted playing, to do. Playing the gorilla, playing the ghost. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best gorillas in the business, mate. Uh, yeah. still, they still talk about your gorilla. Um, they do. They do. I mean, your dad had so many different, uh, you know, roles in, in Welsh entertainment. And it's funny, isn't it? Because we do, t I, Johnny, I often talk about this, we take our own heroes for granted. We don't make enough of them. Do you do you feel a little bit miffed that we don't actually, I mean, we, we try our best to mention Stan almost every show, but you know, do, do you feel that he hasn't been given the recognition that he, he really deserves what he did? Oh, uh, without without a shadow of a doubt, because you see, the thing is, Mal, and I'm, I'm sure you will understand this, I mean, you're, you're either sort of part of the in crowd or you're not. And my dad actually, uh, for about the 70 years of his career, was never really in the in crowd. 
Uh, my dad never really believed in going to showbiz parties and buttering people up to try and get work. Um, although my dad was Welsh and was very proud to be Welsh, he would have never really called himself a comedian from Wales or a Welsh comedian. He was a British comedian and he stood alongside the likes of Ken Dodd, Bruce Forsyth, Morecambe and Wise, uh, all of those sorts of people. Um, he very much was um, a British entertainer. He, he never fell back on the, the sort of thing about, oh, well, you know, I'm from Wales, just like somebody said, oh, well, I'm Irish and all this sort of stuff. Uh, my dad absolutely wanted to stand or fall by the quality of his work. I got to um, just get this now. You know, when we were doing book called Pantomimes, yeah. um, we were doing so well, your father was killing him in Cardiff. They were, do they were yeah. doing bad business. And they and Martin came, the, the producer of Cardiff, came and he said, yeah, I'm not happy, Stan, you're killing me. And he went in and he did five years on the trot in Cardiff New Theatre and sold out every every year. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's been it's been lovely to talk to you today, Kerry. I'm sure we we'll, you, you wouldn't mind coming back and talking about your other loves and your collection. I mean, you oh. it's just there. Um, but yeah. it's, been, it's been a real joy to, to, to talk to you and to honour the memory of Stan. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Kerry Stanitz. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you, boys.